0: Welcome to the Ruby Book Club Podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code
1: Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So today we're continuing with 99 Bottles by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. We're going to discuss the 30-minute coding challenge, which everyone has done, and then look at section 1.1.1, which is entitled Incomprehensibly Concise. And
0: remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Club and check out RubyBookClub.com to follow along. So the first part of this section was doing the actual 30-minute code challenge. So, Nadia, how did that code challenge go for you?
1: It was fun. I really enjoyed it. I haven't been doing that much development at work over the last few weeks. It was really great to have a set of specs and then try and make them pass. The code was not very good in the sense that there was (laughs) I think I've got a conditional in here which has if else if else if else so but the point was and I know like the point is try and get as many passing as possible and then we're gonna learn how to make it better so I wasn't too worried about that just having fun getting through it what about you?
0: Oh lord okay so (laughs) (laughs) so number one I haven't used mini tests before which I was a little nervous about because I feel like people are very either all for spec or all for a mini test. So I kind of assumed that that meant that they were very different, but they're really not. They, they felt you know very similar to me. So that part was good. That part I, I got through pretty well. But then, and, and the whole just test driven development portion of it and just making the test pass, that was very soothing, very relaxing. It was nice to just kind of get in a groove and to basically have the test tell you what to do next. So that part was great. But then I got stuck on something that is just so just nothing to be stuck on uh and that's that just took up like way more time just getting strings to work just i don't I, I don't know what was wrong with me but I would I would do the the first test that said you know just print out this string and it kept giving me like a space in a weird place and then an extra space in this other place and I was like wait what am I doing wrong? And it took it took an embarrassingly long time to just get the strings to show up with the right indentation and space the way that the spec wanted. So that part just made me feel completely stupid.
1: I had something similar too. I'm using Vim and mine was to do with, particularly where I had to get multiple verses out. Yeah. It, I spent, so I spent 35 minutes in total. Oops, five minutes over, oops. And... <laughs> i think 10 minutes of that at least if not more was just trying to rejig the strings and the like new paragraph yeah. thing to so that the indentation would work properly so the test would pass so it was like the right yes. words were coming out but they were just yes. so yeah that's why i felt okay spending an extra 5 minutes on it It's forgivable. Well,
0: I spent, I think I spent like 45 minutes. I'm so sorry, Sandy. I'm so sorry, Katrina. I hope we can still be friends. Um, But yeah, that was just like an annoying, that that was not the thing I wanted to be stuck on, you know? But then afterwards, moving on with the rest of the the tests and kind of the meat of things, it was just, ah, it was such a nice little brain teaser. Because I know that people say when you're learning to code, learning a new language, A really good way of doing it is to do projects and I think that that works for some people, but when I'm doing a project that has a real purpose, especially if it's a project I care about, I get so frustrated that it doesn't work that I lose the value of learning. You know, like I kind of forget that part of the learning is to feel uncomfortable and to struggle with things. And with this being such a contrived example of building this song, I felt very comfortable being like, okay, I don't know this. That's fine. It's okay. You know, and just being able to really focus on the code.
1: And so for those who haven't read the book yet or who haven't done their 30-minute coding challenge, just to explain what it is, that's Ron and I are talking about. So you download a repo from Sandy Metz's GitHub repositories. It's called 99Bottles. And there are, I think, eight or so mini-test specs that have been skipped and you need to make each one pass. So the first one says... You know, test the first verse. So assert that when you say bottles.new.verse and then you pass in 99, you get 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer, take one down and pass it around 98 bottles of beer. And then you test another verse and another verse. And then at some point, you've got to test that you can return a couple of verses. And I think eventually, I didn't get here, you've got to test that you can print out the whole song.
0: And so did you end up finishing the full challenge and printing the full song?
1: No. Me too. So what I've got, if I look at my code, I have one method called verse, which has, takes a number. And then it starts with, if number equals equals two, then print this. Else, if number equals equals one, then print <laughs> this. Else, if number equals equals zero, then print this. Else, now here I've got a bit of interpolation going on. Ooh. It's like interpolate the variable number. Mm -hmm. We just passed in bottles of beer on the wall. Then again, number, bottles of beer. Take one down and pass it around. Number minus one, bottles of beer on the wall. And then I have another method called verses that takes from verse, so the verse that you're going from, to verse is the second argument. And then I make a variable called verses with an empty string. And I make a range, two verse dot, dot, from verse. And I say with each of those verses numbers, uh, insert at the beginning of the string the verse with the verse number, calling on the the method that I first went through. So that might not be very clear, but that's what I do. <laughs> A lot of verses. And then I return all the verses. Yeah, yeah, You get the gist of what my yes. code looks like. Yes.
0: So this is all in the verse method?
1: No, that was so this, the last bit was the verses method, versus where I return verses, it. but the first one was the verse. What does yours look like?
0: Okay, so I'm pretty sure you got a lot further than I did. But for my my uh, bottles class, so we start with a class called bottles. And so I have a verse method as well, which is, which is great, because that was like one of the first things I think we had to do. So I'm following instructions so far. And in that first method, I have an interpolated string. And I have a method. And I totally stole this from Rails. I have a method called <laughs> pluralize where you pass in a number, Mm. and if the number, oh yeah, getting fancy and stealing people's ideas. Uh, So if the number double double equals one, then you have, you know, interpolated string number bottle. Else if number is less than one, you have normal bottles, else number and then bottles. So I use that to figure out if I want to say one bottle versus two bottles, right? And then I have a third method called final verse. So I got to a point where I'm trying to figure out where this was oh so this was in the spec that asked for asked for it to read take one bottle and pass it around uh take one take it down and pass it around no more bottles of beer on the wall and that's only if you have the number if you've passed in only one bottle and so that whole verse was different it wasn't just the bottles that was different mm-hmm. it was the whole verse that was different so going back to my deaf verse i pulled out that one line and just called it final verse so in that final verse method i say if number double double equals one do this otherwise do it the normal way so i saw in my verse that there were certain parts that need to be treated differently and when i saw that and when i kind of started to feel uncomfortable i pulled it out into its own method uh and so Ah, I want to keep going. <laughs> I want to keep getting there because I feel like I was I, I felt like I was at the point where my brain started to stretch and, you know, think a little bit more critically. So, I'm really excited to see what Sandy and Katrina did.
1: Yeah, I had to be quite disciplined about stopping because I knew this was the yep, yep. you know, you've got the red green refactor. This was my like getting it to green phase. Mm-hmm. And I was excited to keep going and then think, okay, how can I be a bit smarter about this? But you know, time constraints and all that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did better than I did. I definitely texted Nadia and was like, can I have 10 more minutes, please?
1: (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't have to tell them.
0: (laughs) Okay, so shall we dig into 1.1.1 incomprehensibly concise? Let's do it. So we see here that we're going to review the first of four possible solutions to the 99 Bottles song. And so it, it's interesting, immediately when I'm looking at this, they don't even start the same way that I've started, <laughs> right? It says, class bottles, the first method that they have isn't verse, it's actually song. And in song, they call another method called verses, and they have 99 and then zero. So you can see just from that method alone that we're going to build out the full song, most likely starting from 99 bottles and probably ending at zero bottles. Yes.
1: Yes. And then we have a method called verses, and it takes two arguments, one called high, spelt H-I, and the other one called low, spelt L-O. And it says high dot down to low, map, and then for each of those numbers, it calls the verse method. And that is defined underneath. And now this method's fun, isn't it, um. Oh, it's so much fun. I was thinking of you doing this method. <laughs> It's because of all the ternary operators. <gasps> the ternaries, and, that's true. And you were that's saying, true. why do people hate them? And I think people hate them when people use them like this.
0: <laughs> that is very
1: fair. Okay, so for
0: this part of the code, we have verse. we're passing in N. And then we have, actually, I want to <laughs> count how many ternaries we have. We have one, two, three, four, five, six... I count it six. Is that how many you count? One, there are ternaries two, in ternaries. Three,
1: four. I was going to say there are five, and I don't know whether. They- oh, there are six. Yeah, there are six. Yeah, You're right. Yeah, there's and two of those are within another one.
0: Yep, it's like ternary inception. That's what's happening right now. And so for this, we. Ha- I'm not going to lie. When I looked at this, I was like, okay, I'm just going to wait on Sandy and Katrina to explain exactly what's happening. But in the <laughs> beginning, we ask: Is the n a zero? If it is a zero, then we're going to put the string no more. And if it is not, then we're going to just pass in n and we're going to look at the word bottle and we're going to add an s if the n is not equal to one. So it's the same idea that we talked about with the whole pluralization and figuring out based on this number, do I add an s, do I change the words? And then we're adding that, or is it interpolate? A concatenation, that's the word. And then we concatenate that with the phrase of beer on the wall, which stays consistent, really, no matter what the what the number of bottles of beer we, that we're dealing with is, and then we concatenate that with another ternary that says, "Is n equal to zero? If it is, then we'll put no more again. If not, we pass in just n, and then we have the same bottle with the interpolation of s if n if n is not. Oh, Jesus Christ! I'm already tired just just explaining mm. this. I'm, I'm only <laughs> on like the third line. <laughs> if n <laughs> is not equal to one. And then we have of beer. So basically, we've created the sentence, no more bottles of beer on the wall. I feel like that's the only thing that we've done so far. And then we go through similar code to get to take it down and pass it around or go to the store and buy some more. And that depends, again, on how many bottles we're dealing with. And then at the very end, we have a section that deals with how many bottles are left. And so again, we're looking at how many bottles do we have. If it's a certain number, we're going to put no more. If it's not, we're going to put the number of bottles of beer. And then we end with of beer on the wall.
1: Okay, can I just say, <sighs> the <sighs> Yes. the fact that that was difficult for you to work through, and also the fact that you sound more tired after <laughs> going through that, <laughs> it just explains how confusing that method is and i love this this quote from the book where it says the code above performs a neat trick it manages to be concise to the point of incomprehensibility while simultaneously retaining loads of duplication yeah
0: yeah it's really really hard to read and as we saw a lot of the logic is very similar it's very dependent on is it zero if it's not do this is it one if it's not do this so we can definitely make that a lot cleaner and drier
1: Yes, and so the next thing that Sadie and Katrina do is that they start to pick out on some of the the issues that are in this code. And the first one we look at is consistency. So we have two forms of conditionals in that method, verse. So we've got lots of the ternary operators, as Saron so wonderfully described to us. But when we talk about the pluralization with bottle that is done using if statements. So it says, add an S if N is not equal to one. And essentially, and I, I think we found this reading the code ourselves independently, it's really hard to just keep all that context in your head because you're already like in the midst of one ternary operator. And then it's saying, also, oh, if this, they do that. And if this, then do that. And you're like, which branch of, which conditional am I on right now?
0: So here's the thing that I find so interesting, and I'm curious to see if you had the same reaction too. Before taking the time to really look at the code, when I just quickly scanned it, there were two thoughts that crossed my mind. One is, oh, this is what real code looks like. And I just thought, there's so many symbols and letters and and things that, oh, this is this is like hardcore programming. Like that was the first thought that came to my mind. And then the second thought is, If it looks this intimidating, then it must be really good. And whoever wrote this must be super smart. And I feel like even though I know logically that's not the case, and the whole premise of this book is that we should be able to write readable code and simple code, there's still that initial instinct that I'm dealing with that says, if it looks complicated, and specifically, if I don't understand it immediately, it must be just real hardcore smart programming. Did you have any of those feelings? no (laughs) so it's just me you see
1: I don't know whether you know I'm reading a book by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen so I know (laughs) that if the code I'm looking at is hard it's looking you know tricky I'm like this is not good code Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean so for example if I think about Theo has been doing some work on our current product right now and he's been using like something called the repository pattern and I think something to do with like command objects and things like that. And that requires me to, you know, sit down with a code and really work through it to get a sense of what's going on. Because, and I think this touches on the whole idea of if you have more abstract concepts, then it can be harder to just read it and understand what's going on. And so he's really focusing on, he's more on the abstraction end of that scale. And and so, and I think some of the stuff he's doing is quite smart, but if you look at each bit of code, it's simple. And so sometimes when I look at code like that, it's like, wow, the person has really sat down and thought about it. And it's clever in the sense of, they have cleverly structured their objects such that, you know, the abstractions are, are solid and it's going to be very easy to extend and maintain. But not clever in the sense that looking at one method and I, I can't get to the end without pausing and then going back and, and saying, wait, 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 what's going on? That, that, that just makes me go, no, 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 awful. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that is good. You're much further along than I am. Because I think that when I first learned to code, I would write these overly explicit and kind of just just a list of if-else statements, right? If this and that, if this and that, if this and that. And when I saw the ternary operator for the first time, I was like, oh, I can condense this all into one line. It just felt, like you said, clever. And so when I see code that is something that isn't obviously readable and explicit, I think I still go to that place where I go, oh, well, if this is shorter than anything I've done, if it's if it's using symbols that I don't immediately recognize, it must be cleverer than I am. And that's not you know, it's definitely not correct. It's not the right way to look at it. But it's something that I have to remind myself and I'm excited for this book to help me get out of that mindset.
1: Right. And so when we come back to this idea of consistency, there's a bit at the end of this section that says, inconsistent styling makes code harder for humans to pass. It raises costs without providing benefits. And yeah, that's the sense that I get when I was reading that verse method. I felt frustrated and annoyed at it. And I was like, this is difficult. This is this is hurting my head. Why? Oh, I don't like the person who wrote this code. And it reminded me of in the last section where Sandy and Katrina said, you know, if you write convoluted tricky code, people will hate you. Yeah. And I, I really like the raising costs without providing benefits
0: because I think being consistent is really important, not just in code, but even other parts of building a product like design. Mm-hmm. and. I get very, I mean, when I do design work, I get very, very annoyed when things are not consistent, but I've never been able to articulate why it's important. And this sentence just just made it a lot easier. You know, it raises costs now I have to think, wait, is this different from this other thing for a reason? Is, is that telling me something? And unless it really is trying to tell me something, there's no benefit and you just gave me more work for no reason. And so I think it's really important to remember when we're building products in general, but definitely when we're coding.
1: Yes, I agree. I like that extension to other, other facets of of our work. The next issue that Sandy and Katrina bring up is to do duplication. So, as you may have noticed when Saron was reading through the verse method, there was a lot of duplication and repetition in how we construct various sentences in the verse. One of which was the pluralization of bottles, or bottle was mm-hmm. done in a few places, and in fact. I think that the solution that you had, Saron, with your pluralized method is more advanced than what we've got here.
0: That's right. My pluralized method was very fancy. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting because when it talks about the issue with duplication of logic and why it's a problem, it says that it suggests that there are concepts hidden in the code that are not yet visible, which I never saw that way before. Like, I I love this idea of things hiding in the code that we have to find and call out and, you know, put in the in their proper places because they're you know, they're not behaving well. Like I I just like this idea of them being, you know, physical things, being objects, right? And so Mm -hmm. here it says that they're not yet visible because they haven't been isolated. And that was my attempt, right, when I pulled out the pluralized method is to say, okay, this thing, I feel like I'm using it already in three different spots. Let me just pull it out and call it its own thing. And so, yeah, that's that's just an interesting way of looking at it. It's not visible. And until we isolate it, pull it out, give it a name, it's going to be hidden from us.
1: Right. And we've just got to start learning how to spot, how to find them, how to hunt for those, those opportunities. Mm-hmm. The next thing that is brought up is this idea of names. And that's very closely tied to these hidden concepts because part of helping us understand the these concepts more and get uh, grapple with the domain of our code is being able to name things in a way that's meaningful and useful. And with respect to the code sample that we've just seen, part of the trouble is that there's, there are all of these different concepts in there and there's all this logic and none of that is named, and so we we struggle to to split out what the different responsibilities are and what the different purposes of each of the bits of code are, and so this is where you know they say that the burden is on us to construct a mental map, and that's part of why it's so tricky trying to work out what's going on. And it's funny because if you t- try to describe to someone the pattern of the song or the algorithm behind the song, it's it sounds incredibly straightforward, right? You've got a certain number of bottles on on a wall. You, you take one down, now you have one fewer, and, and that's it. And to think that you can have so much logic being passed around that you can't even work out what, where, what is going on. <laughs> is this the same song? Yeah, right. And earlier we talked about
0: how it's important to think about the costs and benefits. And I didn't think much about the cost of not naming and the way you put it, you know, that mental map And the burden being on me to, frankly, remember what all these different purposes are and what each thing. And even as I was reading it, I said, okay, well, this part sounds similar to this. I think they're doing the same thing, right? I have to remember that and keep that in my mind. And when we name things, we relieve that burden from our coders.
1: Right. And it says that the logic that's hidden inside the verse string should be dispersed into methods. And verse, so the verse method, should fill itself with values by sending messages. And then we have something which, you know, kind of reminded me of like Nadia's sidebar. Yeah. Within the book, I was like, oh, look, Mm -hmm. there's a sidebar, Sandy and Katrina's sidebar going on. Mm -hmm. And there's this box and it says terminology, method versus message. And the point here is to try and make sure that we're clear on what the difference between a method and a message is. And if someone were to ask me, I would say, yeah, that's obvious. But there's just something about the way Sally and Katrina describe things. It's just their analogies, their, their, the way they use words to, to to set the scene. It just makes it so succinct and so clear that you're like, yes, this is I want I want to learn this and use this to describe it to someone else. Mm-hmm. So messages are things that we define on an object. They contain behavior and a message is sent by an object to invoke behavior typically on another object. So mes- methods are defined, messages are sent. And there's this bit that I've highlighted that says, think of objects as black boxes. Yep, I highlighted it too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Methods are defined within a black box, messages are passed between them. And I thought that was yeah. just a great way of just making that distinction clear.
0: Yeah, and that distinction I think is really important because I definitely read other like, blog posts and just in conversation where... I feel like the line is very blurry, and I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. And here it defines that line very, very clearly, which I think is going to be helpful as we move forward with this book. Yeah. And in making that distinction, it says that it helps you isolate the intention of the sender from the implementation in the receiver. So not only are they two different things, but they're kind of... Dealing with two different sides of the same coin, right? One of it is really talking about the sender, and the other side is talking more about the receiver. So, again, helping you with that object oriented mindset and really making sure that we have a good sense of the map that we're dealing with and the different players on that map so that we can get the most out of our code.
1: Yeah, and I love that bit where it said, having this distinction improves your OO mindset. And I thought, yes, that's what I'm doing here. I'm mm-hmm. improving my OO mindset. And it was great because after reading this section, someone reached out to me on Twitter saying, I don't do Ruby anymore, but is this book worth reading? And I was able to say to them, well, if you're all about OO programming and wanted to improve your OO mindset, then definitely read this book. And they said, great, I'll read it then. And it was, it was mm-hmm. cool because... <laughs> That's what's so powerful about this book. Like the examples are in Ruby, but I feel like it's really about getting solid on that, how to to play and manipulate these object-oriented concepts.
0: Yep, exactly. It's, it's almost like Ruby is the excuse, right? It's the tool that we happen to use to talk about things that are language agnostic.
1: Drawing nicely on from the whole naming section and messages versus methods is a discussion around writing code versus reading code and it starts simply with code is read many more times than it is written Mm as a starting point and so the cost when if you write tricky clever code is that, you know, That's often felt by the reader or someone else who has to come and interact with your code. Thinking back to Confident Ruby, where we often had the, the character that was the consumer of our code and having to think about what they were going to have to deal with when they came to interact with what you'd written. And so code clarity comes down to this idea of naming and making those distinctions clear and ultimately reducing the cost on the other actors who are going to interact with the code that you write.
0: Yeah, and I just didn't think about that. I didn't think about, you know, how many times do you read code versus writing code? And it definitely makes it even more important that code is readable, for sure.
1: Because even if you're working on a project by yourself, I don't know whether you have this, you go away, you come back, you then read your own code to work out where (laughs) you were and what you were doing. And when you're debugging, you're reading your own code to try and work Mm -hmm. out what's gone on. So it's so true. Like, even if you're just working by yourself, you were reading more than writing, probably. If you're bu- if you're building something that works and works well, mm-hmm. yep. I love where Sandy and Katrina then say, but this is an assertion that we've made here that code clarity is built upon names, and so far it's unsupported. And I love this because often you can read things and people say this is how stuff is, mm-hmm. and you're either like yes <laughs> or no. So Sandy and Katrina are like, well, let's give you the tools to equip you to be able to come to these judgments and decisions by yourself. And this is where I'm like yes. Because, you know, part of what we've always been talking about through doing the Ruby Book Club is how can we you know, start getting that tool set and that mind yeah. that starts to ask the right questions. And Sandy and Katrina very kindly give us three questions to get us going. And this is all about how we start to judge the quality of code. And there's a section coming up later that's going to go into this in more detail. But we're given these three questions. That you should ask yourself when you're thinking about how expensive is this code. So the first question is how difficult was it to write? The second question, how hard is it to understand? And the third question, how expensive will it be to change? And I love the bit where they say, well, question one and three they may or may not be relevant because you know you may not have written the code, and right. you may not be well, you may not be good at writing the code. <laughs> <laughs> that, that. Or um, how expensive it would be to change might not be relevant because you're not there to change it. But number two, no matter what the case is, is always, always relevant. And that's how hard is it to understand?
0: Yes, definitely. And there are a couple additional questions that Sandy and Katrina ask as well. And these four questions are very specific to the 99 bottles problem, but it addresses this issue of code needing to clearly reflect the problem it's solving in the problem's domain. So the questions that they ask are, number one, how many verse variants are there? Number two, which verses are most alike in what way? Number three, which verses are most different and in what way? Number four, what is the rule to determine which verse comes next? And so if we look at these questions, The idea is that we are able to see that the code that we wrote really doesn't reflect the domain. It doesn't even really capture that there are some verses that are different and some that are alike. It just kind of forces its way through all of the lines. It just sort of forces its way through all the lines of the song until it finally comes up with something that technically works. But by looking at the code, you can't easily see how the rules are picked and what the rules are and how many types of verses they are. So it really doesn't do a good job of exposing and discussing and showing the problem's domain. And that's a pretty good clue that maybe it can be
1: written better. Particularly because this song is so simple.
0: Right. (laughs) Right. It's very straightforward. And going back to my earlier comment about how looking at this code and I thought, oh man, it's so it's so short and so many symbols and it, it must be so smart. They address this a little bit too at the end of this section where they say brevity may be the soul of wit, but it quickly becomes tedious in code. And so they use the word brevity, and I think when Nadia and I were talking, we used the word clever, but it's all the same thing. Writing something that is short and it it feels very you know concise and and just you know just so witty, you know, it might it might feel good to say like, ooh, look at this i made this song work in just six lines but as the reader of that code it is definitely hard it will leave your coders out of breath as it literally did to me (laughs) so i'm very very excited to figure out now that we know the questions to ask and the different factors to consider i'm excited to see how we can get that code looking better and, and easier so we want to know how did you do on your 99 bottles exercise did you get it done in 30 minutes did you cheat record your 30 second thoughts or email us at hello at rubybookclub.com to tell us how you found it and you might hear yourself on the show and don't forget to tweet us at ruby book club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode and your next project see you next week see ya